0: Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Clinical Conversations. My name is Dr Johnny Bargett and I'm a TMC member and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Dara O'Shea and Dr Sarah Clifford. And we're going to be talking about HIV and its role and how we manage patients with HIV in general and acute internal medicine. Welcome to you both.
2: Hello, thank you for inviting us.
1: Hi there, thank you. So I was wondering if you could just introduce yourselves and what you do and why you're passionate about HIV medicine before we start talking about why we're doing this podcast.
0: So, I'm an infectious diseases consultant based in Edinburgh, all through training and consultant appointments. HIV is a large component of what we do. And I guess, in terms of the aspects of our practice that have great successes over the years. It's certainly one of the highlights in terms of progress that's been made over the course of my career. It remains very important to maintain that progress and to keep up the ongoing sort of battle in terms of trying to control the epidemic.
2: And I'm Sarah Clifford. I'm mm. one of the senior registrars working at the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh. And mm. HIV has always been something that I've been very interested in. As Dara has mentioned, we now have extremely effective, safe treatments that have dramatically changed mm the life expectancy of people living with HIV, but when they first present, they can be in some cases extremely unwell and a challenge to work out what's causing it. And it's interesting to try and work out what's causing that problem and make them better.
1: Great to have you both on the podcast. We've not really had any episodes on HIV medicine, and so it's a pleasure to have you both being experts in your fields and being able to talk about this. I guess just from a basic level for the listeners who are mostly general internal medics, but from across the UK and the world, as we know, what are the basics
0: of HIV? Just so that we're all talking about the same thing. Appealing to the sort of more general audience, the basics are it's a retrovirus, which is acquired and essentially infects some of our T lymphocytes, specifically our CD4 helper T cells, which over time becomes depleted to the point where there's significant deficiency in the immune function and there's increased risk of what we would call opportunistic infections or indeed immune deficiency associated malignancies, whereby as a consequence of impaired immune function, individuals are vulnerable to more unusual or atypical conditions. So at a very basic level, that's how the virus causes its pathology. It's also notable for its ability to form latency and to have what we call a reservoir of viral material, which unfortunately has rendered long-term cure or eradication a challenge. However, with treatment advances and daily medication for the most part, it is a very controllable illness once diagnosed and recognized.
1: It's really helpful just to get that basic level, as you were saying, Dara, as Sarah and I both feel we'll be sending off Bloodborne virus panels for people that may present with infection related presentations. And I was just wondering to ask you, Sarah, about how might someone be diagnosed with HIV and the incidence and prevalence of that within the population of Scotland?
2: As you've alluded to, Johnny, I also work in acute medicine, so I have see patients at the front door. And the way that we would diagnose someone with HIV is by doing a fourth-generation mm. test. So it's a combination of antibody and antigen testing. Mm. And if you do that 45 days from exposure or the potential exposure to HIV, then it's 99% likely to pick up that the patient has HIV So within that time window, there could be false negatives, but usually 45 days is kind of what we say is 99% likely. And then we would always a confirmatory test, a second test to confirm the identity of the patient and make sure that there was no issues with the first sample. And the prevalence in Scotland, I think the last data I saw said it was about roughly 6,400 patients living with HIV in Scotland and roughly 77 to 100 new diagnoses a year, which Is new diagnosis not transfer in of individuals who are known to have HIV from but living in other countries?
1: And I guess one of the things that you're hopefully going to be able to tell us, Dara, is about how you manage patients who live with HIV and how we can keep them well and their viral load undetectable. How can we discuss this further just in terms of what you do on a daily basis with regards to keeping your patients well?
0: Yeah, so I think that the statistics that we heard from Sarah there really do sort of speak to the success of treatment and care. And that's from the screening diagnosis all the way through to treating those who we know are living with the infection. So the numbers of new diagnoses continue to decline. And what we may talk about later is initiatives that have been sort of progressed onto having solved the issue around treating the therapeutics have been used to prevent and the sort of big gains have been made in prevention, which have led to those declining figures across all of the classic risk groups we used to have. So the continuity care is really on the model of simplification now and with new treatment regimens and more tolerable and indeed potent antiviral agents. The vast majority of patients who are engaged in non treatment will achieve what we call undetectability, whereby the molecular assay is enabled to protect the HIV virus below a certain cutoff level and achieving that marker is associated with control essentially normal lifespan and a lack of ability to transmit so you know major benefits associated with achieving that milestone and that's achieved really by making treatment simpler and easier for patients to take and tolerate and again a major advance over the many decades where we've been looking after people living with HIV has been that ease with which treatment remains available. There's still many challenges to support people adhering adequately to their treatments. It's been made very successful, such that we are now at a point where annual reviews and continuity of medication supply it is the norm for most patients, and that very much are in control of their own health care and making decisions around their lifestyle choices. We support them in that way, but increasingly less hands-on than previous, again, supported by the development in treatments. I think what I'd like to do is ask you both now, what kind of
1: patients would you see in the HIV clinic? I guess from a new patient perspective, I'm just trying to get an insight about what the patient journey looks like. A patient that might come into their GP with a symptom that might prompt a test or a patient comes into the ED that has had a pneumonia, that's had an HIV test as part of workup. What would that journey look like and what happens after someone tests positive for HIV?
2: What happens usually is when I'm on call as the on-call registrar, I usually get contacted by either our nurses who are asbestos and HIV or by the virology department informing that there is a patient with a new diagnosis of HIV. And that sometimes happens as an inpatient and sometimes it is a GP test. Usually the GP, if it's a GP, has informed the patient of the result and the lab will always ask, as I said before, for a confirmatory test, it's a blood test. That's how we diagnose it. And I will then contact them to come in to hospital. Usually over the phone, we just generally chat about how they're feeling and make sure they're not extremely unwell and needing to come in the hospital that evening. If they aren't, I try to see them the next day or the following day, bring them into clinic and essentially start going through the process of understanding what they know about HIV. Because there can be a lot of misconceptions and trying to go through as Derek's explain, what HIV is, that there are treatments, it can be one to two tablets a day, but that they will have to take those for the rest of their life. And then really at that point, you don't know what their viral load is or what their CD4 counts. So it's really just trying to work out how immunocompromised they are, if at all. So you do a full examination and you screen them for potential infections. And that can take quite a long time. If they're in hospital, you generally tend to be a bit more concerned that their immune system is more compromised. And they might have some opportunistic infections, hence why they're needing to be in hospital. So you might be worried that their bd 4 count is quite low. And usually, if they're not in hospital, if it's a GP referral, they come in and they're quite well. And I'm not too worried that they have an opportunistic infection, then I would talk to them about starting treatment. And we try to start treatment soon. Some people start it that day, but there's no evidence that you need to do it then and there for the UK. But within sort of a couple of weeks, a week to two weeks, you generally try and get them on treatment if you're not too worried about their physical health at that time. What I mean by being worried about them is you wouldn't want to start treatment on someone who had CNS, TB, cryptococcal disease, or a disease that could be potentially worsened by starting a treatment. Does that kind of explain sort of initially the path?
1: That's really helpful. Dara,
0: do you have any other experiences of that? What's your role in situation? I think the main, as we've heard, the main thing is assessing their physical and psychological needs at a time that's probably quite stressful. And for many, it's a surprising result. For others, it's less so, but they still need support. So this initial support would be quite intensive with, as I said, addressing any physical or psychological needs, main thing around assessing their stage of infection with regards to their immune function and CD4 count, and very quickly ascertaining if there's concerns that there could be a late diagnosis with genistic pathology, which requires consideration in advance of any treatment commencing. So it's very holistic. It's very intense. And then with familiarity and time, you know, things become less demanding and the majority of patients will be quickly established on antiviral treatment and very quickly demonstrating a satisfactory response. There's a lot of time and effort invested in those early interactions because one of the key determinants of success is engagement and patients valuing and buying into the service. That's great. One of the things I was keen to ask is how much does the general
1: medic need to know about CD4 count values, viral load values? Is that something that is more left to yourselves like the specialists?
2: I think it's helpful to have an understanding. I do often get phone calls when I'm on call about patients living with HIV And I think understanding that if a patient's CD4 count is over, well, certainly if it's over 500 and they have an undetectable viral load, that you just consider them to have an immune system like most other people who aren't immunocompromised, and so you're not thinking about whether they have any unusual infections different from anybody else. If your CD4 count is lower, so certainly when you're starting to get under 200, and Dara can correct me if he disagrees. But that's when we start to think that they might have um, different infections, opportunistic infections that we need to screen for. And certainly if it's less than 200 and they're not on treatment and have a detectable viral load, that's when we start to think about other potential infections that they could have or not presenting typically with infections. So sometimes if you're very immunocompromised, you don't have that fever or oh. abnormal test x-ray that you potentially would if you were immunocompetent and had the same infection. So I think that's all I would kind of want an acute medic to know. And also, I guess, asking the patient, they tend to know everything about their disease. They'll probably be able to tell you what treatment they're on, what the latest CD4 count is, and whether they've been undetectable. And we routinely check viral loads every six months. We don't always check CD4 counts that frequently, and certainly we don't, actually. If they've got a reasonable CD4 count on diagnosis, so over 300, you don't necessarily need to keep checking it if they're on, stable on treatment and have an undetectable viral load.
0: I think in terms of adding to that, or in terms of the practical things for the front door physician or general medic is very much use the patient for key information. Checking their CD4 count when they're acutely unwell can give you false sort of numbers by virtue of lymphopenia, which can arise due to many illnesses. So do they know what their last CD4 count was? And then specifically, how adherent have they been to their medications? So if they've been poorly adherent, but were you know, six months ago had numbers that were at satisfactory, that is important information. So getting that adherence sort of history is very helpful because if they've been fully adherent and their CD4 count was normal six months ago, it's probably still effectively normal and they will hopefully remain undetectable. And I think the only other general pointer is around understanding their medications, which again, as we said before, have become easier to manage in terms of drug interactions. But there are some agents which still require checking via the Liverpool Interaction websites before you introduce any new medications to their treatment. That's really helpful sort of guide,
1: demystifying what is useful information and what we should be asking our patients. One of the things that I'm keen to cover, and then we're not really touch on it, is what kind of presentations would prompt that test if either of you had a kind sort of mind map in your head about how or when or in what situation you would consider requesting um, or consenting a patient for an HIV
0: test. I think Sarah's done some work on this, test. so you go
2: ahead. I think test as much as you can, <laughs> really. There's a huge list of conditions that you should test, that the beaver recommend that you should test patients with. So there's those that are classified as aids conditions, but then there's also conditions which have an undiagnosed prevalence of HIV. And the list is quite long, and it includes a lot of people that we see at the front door. So, for example, someone presenting with unexplained weight loss, unexplained lymphadenopathy, a lymphocytic meningitis, or a community-acquired pneumonia should all be tested. So if you think about an acute take, you should really be testing potentially over 50% of the people coming through the front door. So I think just think about it and if you can't remember that huge list of conditions which I don't blame you for then you should be checking it and check it frequently enough until you can remember all of them on that list or just test. Most people aren't bothered about being tested for HIV. I generally say to most patients that I admit I'm going to test with HIV as part of your admission it's a routine test that I do for most patients. And very, very rarely get any pushback on that or questions beyond that, really. Yeah, I think it's an important message to
0: try and communicate to colleagues. Many of our patients... We would start out their journey in an advanced stage, much more complex and higher morbidity associated with the prolonged hospital stays. have probably had multiple healthcare interactions in the few years prior to their actual diagnosis, and some might be expected to trigger an HIV test based on the conditions Sarah mentioned, some wouldn't. So actually reducing that threshold to test is something that Sarah and I, like colleagues alike, would be very keen to sort of promote. There is a resource implication to widespread HIV testing, but actually, it's a useful test to do because if it's negative, it's useful. If it's positive, it's very useful in identifying somebody you might have otherwise slipped through. And it's accurate. It's important, really better to know than not to know and can extrapolate mother other healthcare exercises or public health exercises where it's important to know one's status and I think hopefully that that increase in testing will continue and it will reduce the burden of people that diagnosed in the late stage it can reduce ongoing transmission in the 10% of people who are living with HIV and don't know it and the yield of that is different in different prevalence scenarios but it's a key issue for ourselves in terms of promoting consideration of testing such that we can eat into and reduce down further that undiagnosed reservoir challenge for many a decade now.
1: I guess we could talk about how we reduce the risk of transmission or prevent transmission before we talk about the more severe presentations that could occur in patients who have had high viral loads, low CD4 counts. I just wonder if we could sort of talk about acquisition of HIV, talk about prep and PEP, and just define what those terms
0: are, just so the audience know. PEP is post-exposure prophylaxis, and it's reactive, so it's giving somebody prophylaxis after they potentially had a high-risk exposure, and it can be after, so I was a sexual encounter or indeed a healthcare associated. The main means to reduce the risk of HIV transmission is to know people's HIV status and if living with HIV have them on treatment and undetectable and therefore transmission will not be possible. So you can reduce your community or your royal reservoir community PrEP has been a major development probably over the last number of years where we have pre-exposure prophylaxis whereby the antiretroviral therapy is prescribed in high-risk groups to prevent HIV acquisition, largely in men who have sex with men engaged in high-risk activity. But there are other populations who can potentially benefit from PrEP and therefore always mindful if an encounter with somebody raises that question that they might be at higher risk of requiring HIV you know whether they will be linked into a service to try and prevent because prevention is better than cure and just like detection is better than diagnosing at late stages so both PrEP more so than PEP really because the ability of PrEP to Be effective has been borne out by the decline in the new index infections or incident infections in the MSM population since it's been rolled out. And there's been some good work in other high risk female groups in other parts of the world, whereby using antiretroviral therapy has been effective in reducing their risk of acquisition in higher risk settings. It's another piece of our toolkit to really alter the epidemiology of HIV.
2: Yeah, so I guess just to summarize basically what. Dara said, it's for people who don't have HIV to try and prevent their acquisition of HIV posted after the exposure and pre, is before the potential exposure. And it can be used in any gender so people born male or female at birth can have it. And in women, there is an injectable version, I think, that's been currently trialed. The injectable version is also available for men, but there was some concern with women that taking the oral tablet." was difficult in some scenarios that they had external pressure not to be seen to be taking threats for some reason. They weren't getting the desired levels of drug in their system. so weren't having as much benefit as we were seeing in the men who have sex with men population. And so now they're trialing an injectable. So not to say that the pre exposure prophylaxis doesn't work in women. It was just that the adherence seemed to be more difficult for women who were at risk of HIV being exposed to HIV, so there is also an injectable form. But anyone who feels that they could be at risk can go to their sexual health clinic and ask about it.
1: That's really helpful just to discuss what PEP and PREP are. And I just wanted to ask you, Dara, about what side effects antiretroviral therapy medications may have with patients and what they might experience.
0: Well, thankfully, most experience very little, actually. And again, referring back to the progress we've talked about, the the current regimens we use are extraordinarily well tolerated by patients. And even the days of patients presenting or acute evaluation with side effects of antiretroviral therapy, unusual things like pancreatitis or even acute renal failure have largely disappeared from practice. So there are simple things we will counsel patients upon initiating on medications is largely what you might tell a patient who's starting antibiotics and they might cause fatigue, nausea, sort of mild GI disturbance initially. There's a myriad of agents and some have quite unique side effects, and so we would sometimes counsel individuals on those first, more so to maybe expect them and not to discontinue when they experience a side effect. But some of the agents will have some issues around sleep, some mood changes or psychological aspects, which again, don't develop acutely, but are something we would monitor over the initial visits, which when they're commencing on treatment. The common agents that we would be starting people on now, really, that's probably about it. There's some very, very rare chances of sort of hypersensitivity. Drug reactions, rash and fever, again, vanishingly rare. So thankfully, it's actually very straightforward now. And it's hard for me to think of an initiation that I've overseen over the last number of years where we've had to switch because of the development of side effects.
1: That's a really good overview, and it's important to let our listeners know that actually the therapies that are available have progressed as well as, as you have mentioned, Sarah. I guess one of the things that I'd like to discuss before we wrap things up is about your experience of looking after patients who've been living with HIV, who've come into hospital, as we discussed with pneumonia, or have been found to have low CD4 counts, less than 200, as you've suggested, Sarah. high viral loads. What kind of conditions or infections might patients present with and and how would you go about managing these just through your experience
0: of practicing? I'll open with Dara, please. So I think that probably when we encounter these aspects, it's largely probably seen in those who have been living undiagnosed for a period of time and present at late stages. Pneumocystis pneumonia is probably still the most commonly encountered indicant diagnosis. diagnosis present uh, simultaneously with the diagnosis of of HIV and indicating an an immune deficiency. And I think, thankfully, most people are very aware of pneumocystis now, both in HIV and non-HIV, and uh, recognizing the cardinal features of more advanced hypoxia and perhaps subtle radiologic changes in an at-risk host, and therefore identifying simultaneously the need for treatment, specifically targeting a very highly morbid condition, but also test to identify the underlying diagnosis. And I think that would still, largely speaking, be the entity we see in, in those scenarios. We do have a very small number of patients who will be non-compliant or refuse to take antiretroviral therapy, and they can obviously present at late stages and have a slightly more expanded repertoire of opportunistic pathology. We do worry about lymphoproliferative lymph- lymph- malignancy and lymphomas in that population. And another particular Nugget, I suppose, to relay is the concept of neurologic infection. So there's cryptococcal meningitis or cerebral toxoplasmosis. That's sort of the two such examples. Mycobacteria, which Sarah referenced earlier. They can manifest differently in people who are immunocompromised, so they may not have the usual clinical manifestations. There is a need to be conservative in terms of your evaluation. So imaging pre-LP in immunocompromised folk just because they can have fairly advanced pathology, but not necessarily as much in the way of clinical science. So they are conditions that are important to have an index of suspicion about and fully evaluate prior to perhaps the reintroduction of antiretroviral therapy. So a good comprehensive evaluation needed, and clearly it needs to be in the mindset of acute physicians who could be interacting with either a newly diagnosed late presentation or in fact someone who's known but has not been engaged in antiretroviral therapy.
2: The only thing I would say is that often in these patients, see that they have multiple the so patients, as Dara said, either not taking treatment or newly diagnosed and very immunocompromised. They sometimes can have multiple pathologies simultaneously. So just because you've found PPP doesn't mean that you might not pick up another infection. So don't stop looking, just keep looking for the potential infections that they could have if they're not getting better.
1: I think that's a really useful nugget, as you would say, Dara. Just to wrap things up now. I was just wondering if, Sarah, maybe you'd like to give the listeners some take-home messages. I think certainly my take-home message is we should be testing more and more people coming into AMU with their presentations or considering why not to test for HIV. But that's certainly my message from today. What are your thoughts, Sarah?
2: Yeah, I agree. I think, as you said, Ed, in my head there's no reason not to test if you think about testing. So test that there are methods now of preventing HIV. So people who are at risk, you should be signposting them to genetic medicine or online services that they can access to prevent them from acquiring HIV and that they can have a normal life with adherence to treatment and we will try and provide a treatment they find most tolerable and they can just end up taking one tablet once a day. So that's probably my main take home. It's a real example of
0: medical advancements from where we started out a few decades ago to where we're at now and our focus is indeed largely now on preventing new index cases and to a certain extent have found a solution to treat those who have acquired HIV and who are known to be living with it but living well. I think the testing aspect is very important. It brings many benefits, but specifically for an individual whose healthcare interactions increasingly in the modern world may be with acute services and less with a GP, just how the services have been realigned and reconfigured and different demands. So actually having those individuals primed to be thinking about what is a simple test, which if identifies a condition is eminently treatable and could prevent serious morbidity and potentially mortality in the future. So it is a simple intervention which really can have a huge impact, although the vast majority of times when you're screening just by the nature of the low prevalence, it will be negative. It's still a useful test to be performing. And I think provides meaningful information either way. The progress I think is and as Sarah said again, using your role in that sort of acute interaction to perhaps counsel and direct and signpost to services for individuals is very important. And I think the last thing is remembering to use the patients. So if someone is living with HIV, it's really straightforward now. The medications aren't complex. They're likely to know where they are at in terms of immune function and whether they're undetectable and have they been adhering. And that can make your assessment much easier because you then immediately shut down a whole avenue of concerns and evaluations if you are able to, on the basis of the patient's information, certainly understand that they're likely to be stable and on treatment. And if you can look back and check their recent labs, support that, you can literally evaluate it in, in potentially a much more simple way.
1: That's Perfect. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you both about HIV and people living with HIV and I'd like to thank you both for your time today and I look forward to hearing the feedback on this episode. So thank you both. Bye-bye.